Welcome to Ibithology, podcast celebrating the culture and history of the island of Ibiza. In this episode, you're going to meet the architect Rolf Blackstad, who's just published in English his father's amazing book, which links traditional Ibithan thinker design back more than 2,000 years to the Phoenicians who settled here from what is now Lebanon. Rolf's father spent decades roaming the island's countryside, measuring, drawing and recording the architecture, just as the forces of modernity were changing the island forever. The result is a book full of beautiful, detailed line drawings, photos and text, demonstrating how it was identical to the architecture he had seen in North Africa and the Middle East. <coughs> So, um, Rolf, I've just finished reading your father's book, The House of Ibiza, The Key to a Millennial Tradition, and I would describe it as a masterpiece. I'd say it represents, to me, maybe a, a lifetime of your father's research and passion for understanding the roots of traditional Ibethan architecture, both buildings and wells. And if you look inside the book, and I, I urge everyone listening to buy a copy of this, you'll see painstaking line drawings and descriptions by Rolf's father, comparing details of Ibethan thinker design with that of ancient and contemporary buildings in the Middle East and North Africa. So, Rolf, welcome. It's great to get you on the, on the line. Shame we can't be face to face this time round. Uh, how would you describe your father's theory about the links between Ibethan architecture and the ancient people who colonised Ibiza centuries ago? Well, well, thank you. Um, exactly. Unfortunately, you know, we can't be sitting face to face, but this is as good as it gets. First of all, I mean, my, when my father arrived in, in the mid-1950s, the island was so much different than what it was today, it is today, and was probably slightly easier in order to make that connection of uh, traditional architecture of the island with where the, you know, its origins were most likely from. And, um, but we also have to remember that for a long, long time, what is now sort of, you know, considered as, as uh, as common knowledge was was not the case, and as a matter of fact, you know, a lot of the academics would, did, did not agree with with his with his uh, theories. There's still, you know, some that don't, and uh, it was a sort of uphill sort of uh, fight with him. Quite often was the was was his theory, and I think one of the things was is due to the amount of traveling he was able to do because he was a he was a cameraman. He was a cinematographer for doing documentaries, mainly for the CBC, doing a lot of uh, work in the all over the world. And he was he was able to sort of, you know, connect the dots and um, and uh, figure out sort of where or have an interest of where the origins of the Ibisenko architecture, you know, originated. And um, and uh, something that was probably you know not that important, definitely not to the islanders at the time. They had bigger you know worries. 
um, than than wondering about you know where their the, their architecture had originated. It's from his travels then to what to, to North Africa and the Middle East that he started to 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 draw connections and, and no, notice similarities. Absolutely, and then I mean he the uh, then you know he he also then made a point of actually you know traveling a lot not only just by coincidence to those places but going to those uh, um, locations to actually study the the architecture and the you know ancient architecture of those of the countries and how how far back does he does he trace it in terms of the, the people that came to Ibiza when, when did this architecture arrive well it arrived with the with the Phoenicians in the um, 7th century BC um, it goes way 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 further back I mean, we're, you're looking at the really the there's probably from about the ninth millennium BC uh, until very recent times, mid 20th century. Very little changed in the way these buildings were built, or even the, much in the way that they were actually used. Even you know, even considering that we're talking about you know the Stone Age. Um, uh, we 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 visited in the early 80s. I was in uh, Çatalhöyük in um, eastern Turkey, and um, on that the you know the excavations that they were doing there. And if you if I would really urge you to 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 um, to Google uh, Çatalhöyük, and more than anything look at the images just look at the images of the recreations of how those houses would have been 10,000 you know years ago so really he's he's talking about um a, ne a neolithic culture so uh, almost a stone age culture which the, which the phoenicians had also adopted and which, which spread across the middle east north africa and, and a lot of sort of arid arid parts of of the world yeah, well, I mean, the, of course, the Phoenicians were no longer Stone Age, but um, the the um, the the techniques, the building techniques, and the overall general um, the design of the buildings for the um, humid or the, in this case dry dry climate is were all already sort of the bases were set that long ago, and the development into the sort of two two general. Uh, concepts of, of design for the building, which were the the flat roofs or the pitched roofs, depending on the climate you're in, and they still sort of remain to that to this day. And what what you can see definitely in the Mediterranean is the um, the, the the let's say the more humble buildings were definitely continued in the areas that had been under the Carthaginians remain to this day, as it is in Ibiza. You'll see in sort of uh, areas that of uh, northern Africa. Um, Sicily was also, um, of course, um, influenced greatly, and southern Spain. I mean, uh, down in Cadiz, it's actually the, the Phoenician settlements down in Cadiz are actually predate Ibiza by many centuries. So, um, for, but those those are the areas where we we retain um, um, the Carthaginian uh, Phoenician and Carthaginian influence in the buildings. Whereas then um, the Romans, which actually, of course, based a lot of, you know, their buildings much more on the classical Greek, is you'll see then the, especially the European uh, areas of the Mediterranean are much more influenced by the Roman, um, Roman tradition. 
I, I love the way he describes that um, when the Romans leave Ibiza, well, the architecture just carries on, just returns back to that um, Neolithic system. And I, I think the fact, the point that he's trying to make is that it's a kind of logical, viable culture, logical, vi viable kind of architecture. And it's the sort of basic culture that survived lots of crises, political upheavals and, and breakdowns here on the island and in the Middle East. And as you say, to this day, you can still see that architecture, you know, in, in poorer areas, in more primitive parts of um, North Africa and the Middle East. Absolutely. I mean, they continue. I mean, we, we're, we look at it now in the past and it's only 70 years ago, whereas there's many areas in the in the world where, of course, it's not. It's still part of their, you know, current, current, uh, current uh, culture. And the, the thing is, is, uh, you know, during the Romans, it didn't change either. Life just went on as, as usual. The, um, the, only, the only area that possibly slightly, you know, changed was the, the administrative center, which would have been in uh, Dalbila. But then on the other hand, under, under the Romans, the, um, the, the island Ibiza, you know, lost a, a lot of importance to Majorca, whereas under the Carthaginians, Ibiza had been the sort of um, center, the uh, hub in the, the um, Balearics for the Carthaginians, whereas Mallorca and Menorca weren't. Due to the due to the population that they 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 had, which was you know in, in the case of Vita, there wasn't really much of a of a indigenous population when the Phoenicians arrived, whereas in um, in Mallorca and Menorca there was, and you see that with all the 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 uh, stone the Stone Age remains that they still have there. Where were we? Oh no, sorry. I actually I did want to point something out, and it, what's funny enough is that all of these invasions that the island has suffered over the last two thousand, you know, six hundred years, is funny enough. I would say that the one that's actually been most definitive in the change of of uh, culture here is the one that's been, in in a sense, less violent, but not necessarily less aggressive to to the to the uh, to the culture, and which is the pre which is which is the present one. <laughs> yes. Yes, the, I mean the present culture has has transformed the island in ways it's never been. It's reached parts of the island that were never touched by those previous invaders. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder whether we could move on now and a bit more detail. Can you, can you describe some of the main parts of Ibethan building design that he identified as similar to those of these ancient cultures? Um, well, I think, you know, the, the, the fact is they're not, you know, they're not really, his, his interpretation is they're not similar, but they are the same. And the, the difference is, is whereas a lot, you know, you're, you're, he's focusing on buildings that were built many thousands of years ago. The only thing is, is what he's stating is they're still built in the same way. And they're built in the, uh, with the, with the same, with the same layouts, with the same uses, because as a matter of fact, you know, the way people were living, they were living in the way that most people were living thousands of years ago, whereas, you know, many, many other areas, especially in Europe, of course, have moved on. So, um, you know, especially he's focusing on um, the Eastern Mediterranean areas, which are now, of course, you know, Syria or Palestine or um, Jordan and um, or, you know, areas of the Greek islands that would have been under pre-classical, which would have been Crete or southern southern greece and which which also had the same architectural traditional architecture and um in the sense of the progression of how houses were built 
where they where they where they started from and we still see it today and we still especially see it now that we you know all of these any old house that that is worked on we need an archaeological survey done and to see how the houses progressed from one main living room where they would add on two bedrooms at the back the kitchen on one side and then there would start to be various uh, variations but on the whole they they pretty much follow the same the same layout and um, as a matter of fact, to be able to figure that out, he was able to do that because of the amount of old houses that were untouched at the time that he arrived on the island. It's something much more difficult to study now due to the fact that there's so few of them left. And um, especially those that have not already been, you know, either destroyed or modified to the extent that you wouldn't hardly even recognize them. Uh, it, it, it's not just that, um, you know, the basic design of the house that you've just described, but he goes into a lot of detail sort of looking at um, the design of fres frescoes and, and as carvings on the wood and, you know, all kinds of really intimate details that he's found in Ibethan Finkers that he, he draws a comparison to those other parts Yeah, of the because, they're, because they're pre-Christian. And they would be pre-Christian. Those symbols were, were pre-Christian, and of course, um, pre obviously they're pre-Christian. They're pre-pre-Islam. So um, those were those were at the, at the same time. I mean, of course, we have to realize that it wasn't only the architecture that was introduced by the the, the Phoenicians to the island, but all their other beliefs. So those the the interesting thing is that those beliefs continued probably much later than than uh than often often expected due due to the due to the remains that we uncovered when we were working on on old houses the 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 frescoes that you would you can find or as you say the carvings in the in the beams the you know the beams most of the most of you you have to consider that most of the timber of course rots after you know 100 or 200 years it's uh, or is replaced so it's you know, it's of course any remains that you find in a fresco, which again, of course, cannot be. You know, is, is whitewashed over or flakes off and is repainted. It's often is the case that you know the people that are repainting them or carving them are not aware of the original significance of why they were inscribed in the in or you know painted on the wall or carved into the wood, and they're just repeating them in the same way that they were just um, building new houses maintaining the same layout and the same dimensions is they were introducing these decorative um, elements also, which they probably didn't even know what they were. Yeah, there's a, there's a lovely quote actually from your dad in the book. It says, he said, techniques are learned by each child born into a traditional culture. The learning is absorbed at a very deep level. Techniques learned intellectually are not so deeply embedded. <laughs> and, you know, obviously they weren't, probably literate, they weren't looking at plans, they were just recreating what was and maintaining what was already there. No, of course, yeah, maintaining what was already there or creating or creating it, cre recreating it again, but and, and repeating it for, as you say, it's ingrained and you don't, you know, and you don't, there's a lot of things that you might not even be, be aware of, and you would consider them to be decorative, but they've actually have much more profound um, symbolism than 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 you you're aware of or understand and that might be lost completely in the same way that there's you know the the patterns for example on the on the on the iron door rings on the main doors is you know my father has a has a concept of what their that meaning is 
And but who knows if that's correct? Because it goes back two thousand years, and you know that knowledge has been uh, been been lost. We don't know. And I, I love the way he describes how there were no written or drawn plans for buildings, but it was through a sort of intimate knowledge of the site and the conditions, and by sort of mentally projecting how the building would look. That's that's how builders worked, wasn't it? Yes, I mean, it was, it, it was intuitive, much more so than today, where it's much more intellectual. I mean, there, I mean, it was pretty purely practical. Their buildings, you know, um, that, you know, adapted perfectly to their way of life and, um, you know, and their needs in the same way that, of course, you know, we adapt. It's a question is, for example, right now, for us to live in an old finca, we're basically adapting our lifestyle to the house. Whereas they wouldn't be, They're, the house was perfectly adapted to their lifestyle or their needs. So in this case, is again, um, it, this is you know when, when the, the old houses are so beautiful, but it is true that um, you do have to adapt your your um, your life to them. So the question is is to find a you know a, a balanced medium in that you can adapt the the traditional um, the beauty and the and and let's say the also. You know all all of the good things about the traditional architecture to the present day. Yeah, he's got a, a, another nice quote. You know how he sometimes. I think last time I spoke to you, we talked about how thinkers kind of look organic, as if they've sort of grown out of the out of the land. And his there's a quote in the book saying, "A modern building seldom sits well on its site. Peasant-built houses of Ibiza look like they have grown out of the ground itself." And I, I just I just wondered how your father's research that you were obviously involved in. How has that informed your own building and architectural practices? Well, I must say my, my father's research started a long time before I was involved in anything there. Um, I mean, you know, my, my involvement in, in, in those studies probably was uh, more in the sense of uh, holding the end of a, a tape measure, you know, climbing mm -hmm. over some, you know, the walls of the old houses and, you know. Um, so uh, how does it, okay, I, I mean, the, the thing is, is that the, that the peasants did not have the luxury of being able to make things complicated in the sense that we do today. So they were just using the, the natural materials that they could find on site. And that's why you'll see that, you know, sometimes the, the, um, the mortar that's, that, that's used is different colors because they're just using the, the earth that they have to hand. And, uh, you know, the rocks are different colors, different types of rocks, the, the, you know, depending on, what they had and the same way was with the the beams let's say that the, the dimensions of the rooms are limited by the length of the of the timber the the beams the 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 um juniper trees that they could grow on site so you know they they, they look like they're just growing out of the ground because they are it's the same material it's exactly the same material and and again you know there's there's the there's steps in the houses because more often than not they're set at the sort of the foot of the hills because they don't want to be building on good farmland, because farmland was 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 uh, very very uh, you know there's a lot of sacrifice in order to create it. You see all the little old um, stone walls with these narrow terraces that they could cultivate, which you know whenever we have a big forest fire, you 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 can see them when all the you know forest has burnt down. It was an immense amount of work for them to do that. So of course they would build on the on the least fertile part of their land, and um, 
So, you know, you're at the at the foot of the hill. Well, you, you build up the hill. The back rooms are two steps or uh, three steps higher than your living room. It's only because they couldn't dig down into the rock or they couldn't, you know, they didn't want to bother with having to lift up a platform um, above the ground in front because of the additional work that that would also imply to no gain. So, um, you know, all of these things in the in in the sense, of, you know, if you build on the flat, well, the house is flat. If it's built on the side of the hill, well, it's not. It's not. I mean, it's just, you know, it's there's there is very little aesthetic thought behind it. It's just the way it was, and they were just following what would, would what made sense. And that is where you have these the the these very few decorative details which you might find in the. Um, uh, carved wooden capitals, or as you, as you, you know, maybe some, some, um, some details around a door. But I mean, that's about it. Yeah, and that that that, that process that you've described, obviously, obviously, it's very different today when you're working on on a project. Is is there anything that you tried to take from that that traditional way of constructing into your modern practices in terms of, I don't know, using local materials or I mean, you obviously don't don't measure in royal cubits anymore, but oh, is absolutely, it, is it... we do. Of course, we do. Oh, you do. Okay. Yeah, of course we do. Why not? It's <laughs> it's been done for you know many thousands of years. But there's, there's uh, you know, especially you know, dim you know, it's a dim dimensions like that. Why wouldn't you? Um, it makes it more interesting. I mean, it also you have to be aware that the you know the 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 old houses were built to um to to units. Um, so, so of course, I mean, any, 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 uh, any measuring unit is a unit, but in this case, you know, they relate, they relate very much to your, um, to you physically, because actually, because, because of what it is, because what is a royal cubit? It's the length of your, of your, of your, of your forearm plus, uh, plus your fingers. So, um, you know, that would, those dimensions do relate to you. Of course, they relate to, you know, to a standard, to a standard um, physical, you know, size, of course, you know, uh, whereas before, I mean, this is, this of course is what he states there, of course, also is that um, when they were actually using, we use it as a, as a, as a unit of, of, of length in centimeters, of course, whereas they were using it, actually, they were using their, their, um, their palms or their, you know, the length of the forearm to the tip of their fingers plus, the 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 four four the four fingers in order to to make those uh take those measurements and dimensions of the houses they were building so they related completely to them um personally so um what do we do going back to what the question was i think more than anything it is to be aware of how to get the house to sit in the landscape in a similar way that they 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 would have traditionally and i think you know it's also to be humble in your design we're not reinventing the wheel we're definitely using a lot of the information that was accumulated over you know hundreds of generations to get where we are and we've made adjustments to the designs in the houses in order to make them more suitable for our you know modern um living standards but more than anything more in the sense of dimensions and so on i mean there that that relates much more probably to the amount of light that we try to get into the house 
apart from I think you know minor issues, which I would consider them minor, which more of the you know the finishes that you might might be using, which are actually surprisingly similar. I mean, you know, uh, Terrazzo goes back, you know, to to the time of uh, Gobekli Tepe, which was the you know the first temple built in whatever it was, you know, ten thousand BC. So a lot of these materials, I mean, they're still the same. So you you do new builds and you renovate old thinkers, do you? And so it sounds like you're trying to make them fit into the landscape in a similar way to the old traditional thinkers. Yes, I mean I think we work under the same concept. I don't think we're you know we're not trying to copy old thinkers anymore. That's not the, the, the case. But we are definitely trying to work under the same under the same concepts, which we believe are that you know um, they work. And they're definitely, in our opinion, also pleasant to observe. But you might put some big plate glass windows in to let more light in. Is, that, is, that, is, that, is the light the main difference? I think the light, the light and the openness of the interior and exterior spaces. So usually we would not, we would put large, we do use a lot of glass, but usually it's behind, it's set back behind, uh, say, a, you know, porches or pergolas um, for two reasons. I mean, one is purely practical, which are uh, you know, um, the which is the the avoiding direct uh, exposure to the sun. Um, so you have a shaded area in front of your um, in front of your openings, and in this case, in Ibiza, you know, we have you know the sun. The sun is very high in the summer, so it keeps the uh, it keeps the sun out of the house. Whereas in the winter, where the sun is much lower, it'll fall um, below. The overhang of the porch or the pergola and allow and allow light this direct sunlight into the house which is of course what you what you want in the in the summer and in the winter sorry and um that is something that's changing here also is the fact that so many of the houses used to be exclusively for summer use that's changing now in that there you know there's a lot more of them used uh, and lived in all year round and um the other reason would be by setting them back behind um a porch or a pergola is we don't read the glass on the facade because it's set back. What you read on the facade is the, uh, the, the the pergola and the porch, which of course are traditional elements or architectural uh, features. The book also has a beautiful section in it about the wells of Ibiza, um, talking about the, the design of the wells and the frescoes that you find on the on the wells. What did your dad have to say about well the wells of Ibiza, Rolf? Well, he always considered them as magic, magic, uh, magic places and um if you think about it is you know we take waters for granted now and um it wasn't and it never was it was you know people you'd go and live where there was water and um in the same way as uh as especially if you you, you can relate to it much more in very arid areas where you have an oasis where you have you know you have water you would have a, a date palm and uh you would have water and um and food as a matter of fact, there were um, palm trees planted by many of the, the, the wells or springs here, and um, as tra traditionally, I mean, they were they were the um, originally came with the with the Carthaginians, and um, so in this case, what you would have is the uh, first of all is to be aware that the farms were small farms; they were poor, and um, usually they would be you know divided up over 
over different generations inheritance and um, what you would usually have is you would have a, a larger farm with you know very arid no water which would be um, planted with cereals and say fig trees and olives and you'd end up having a small uh, vegetable patch near where the springs are because the in this case you had to manually often manually carry the water to to uh, to the house as a matter of fact my father's house is the it of course had a had a cistern and um you had to depend on the rainwater at that you know obviously decades ago there was more rainfall and it was you know during the winter months it was slightly slightly uh, you know you would get more more rain spread out instead of these you know torrential rains which uh, would immediately fill up the, the the water tank and then you know not have any more rain from for months so from his house you'd have to walk up a good you know good 40 minute walk to the uh, to the spring to get water so they were you know very very dependent on on the understanding of the importance of of those springs and in his case not only he's not only focusing on he's focusing on the springs also as places where they would have gone to worship um due to the due to the to the importance of that water and um would have considered them sacred places not only um as, as sources for 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 water i i like the way you, that you use the word magic there it, it it feels to me like like your father really sort of felt felt that would you describe him as a kind of a, a mystical kind of person absolutely and um, what what um i mean did, did he have particular beliefs in any of those deities or did he just he just felt the the magic the magic the, the spiritual side of it well he definitely he definitely considered that um as you know as, as, as uh, a spiritual yes and i mean he would he would uh, definitely have said that he could he could feel it mm. I mean, he would, he could, he would definitely say he could feel the energy. He also, in in the book, he shows the design of the well, the wells, and he just describes in quite a lot of detail the way that the different designs of them. They relate to usually the the um, the tree of life, and also um, Tanit, and probably with 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 uh, Tanit more in the sort of the aspect of Tanit because she has so many facets of the um of her being the moon goddess and the um and then of course you know the different um phases of the moon and how they relate relate to to growth death and and uh, renewal and you know rebirth so and that is um you know it's often introduced into these uh into the into the springs yeah they certainly are magical places you can you can feel it when you go to visit one and he also has a section in there about about gardens what did you what did your dad think about ibethan gardens or puertos puertos compared with these north african middle east designs well i mean he would have considered the whole island was a garden i mean that's what he would say um, the whole garden, the whole island was, and the reason he would he said that was that the whole island was manicured when he arrived. It, you know, every single inch was uh, was um, was taken care of and loved and, and and cared for because they, you know, that would that was what provided 
the population with their with their livelihood. How it relates to to North Africa, I mean, it's basically the the, the same. I mean, of course, so much, a lot of probably like you know the uh, systems for irrigation and so on came with the Arabs, anyways. And um, of course, if you if you I mean, if you go to North Africa. It's still so much. It's there's areas in North Africa so much like Ibiza was, um, you know, 60, 70 years ago. Presumably, you, you can remember a time when Ibiza was still pretty much like, you know, a garden. How does it make you feel about the way it's changed over the years? Well, I think what you you have you have um, particularly two points of view. Um, and one of them would be for the people who were living, um, you know, during that time, the locals. And the the uh, you know, of course, the it was beautiful, but you know, that's probably not what they were noticing. I mean, they were probably noticing more the, the hardship. So, I mean, we're in a we're in a position now where we're able to look back and be nostalgic about something that it, it was backbreaking work. Is we might look we might look at it slightly differently than we do now if we were the ones you know with a you know wooden hoe in our hands you know a dawn digging away. So um, in in the in the one I think it's putting it into perspective. I would love to see it going back, and I believe it could go back to um, to be able to 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 farm, of course, with, you know, modern methods, it's much, much more easy. So my feeling would be that, um, you know, anyone wanting to live in the in the country should respect that fact and should be probably doing more about their, um, you know, about their fields and their land than they are at the moment, which is often it's just abandoned. And in this case, actually, I would say it's probably more quite often the local, many of the locals who are still through sort of the inertia of the understanding of how important that land actually is for their livelihood or was for their livelihood, not anymore, still sort of take care of it, plow it, prune the trees and so on. Although, you know, it, it gives them no, no financial um, benefit. And on the contrary, absolutely the opposite, but they still do it out of love for, the, uh, for, the, for their land. And do, do you feel at all optimistic about the future for for the for the look of the island. I mean, the, like, there's a huge green environmental movement on the island. There seems to be a, a big push towards regenerating the landscape, but you don't actually see that much of it, that much change at the moment. No. Um, well, no, so of course, I'm extremely optimistic. I mean, I'm I'm always optimistic about this the island and. Um, I mean, as you know, as we've mentioned previously, all the you know previous invasions there they've been and changes, and you know this is just one more of them. And um, the, you know the Ibiza always ends up landing on its feet. And um, I think you know it's just another it's just another process, and it will come. I mean, there's a global there's a global movement towards uh, towards being more green, which I think is very positive, and it had to come sort of from grass grassroots. You couldn't expect the the um, you know governments to impose it it has to come from below and um absolutely absolutely i'm i'm very optimistic well he also in the book he draws he draws parallels between ibethan clothing and middle eastern cultures as well doesn't he that it's 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 like it's it's the whole culture that 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 was maintained not not just the well there's sort there's i mean there's of course there's a certain amount of elements that coincided anyways i mean if you think of uh you know how how um let's say 
particularly probably more than anything how the uh, the, the women were, were dressed 70, 80 years ago. It coincided anyways, whether they were um, Christian or or um, or Muslim, due to the fact that you know the, the the clothes were so similar. I mean, they were out in the they were out in the in the countryside. They were covered up. It wasn't only Ibiza. I mean, this was probably you know it's all of Spain. Um, I think what the what you 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 have to focus on more in that sense in the similarities between what you find here in the in the Near East is more let's say the embroidery more the details more than more than the actual clothing itself because that you'd have to agree that it's sort of pretty much similar throughout the whole of the mediterranean and it's probably due more to climatic um um reasons and yes and and also with with um different beliefs but a lot of those beliefs do have a lot of coincidences anyways so in this case i think it was he was focusing on on the jewelry, on the on the designs of the jewelry, on the designs of the um, of the of the patterns of the embroideries of the you know shawls or the, or, or um, festive uh, garments that they they had. You mentioned earlier that um, his theories are controversial in some circles. Why why are his theories disputed? Well, of course, I mean he's he's he's. Um, I mean, he he was not an archaeologist. He was not even an architect. So um, you know, he didn't have any any training in those in those uh, in those areas. And um, it was, I think, that was actually one of the things that probably allowed him to sort of step back, see it, and actually be able to sort of put forward a controversial um, um, theory. Because obviously he wasn't burning burning any any bridges because he had none to burn. So why? I mean, uh, the other thing is, of course, you know, as he mentioned in his book, he's he you know he considered this as a living archaeology, and that sense it's not you're not you know you're not excavating the past. You're actually you know considering it in the present because it's still part of the past. And um, why why it was controversial? Because well, who knows? Maybe I don't want to go there either. <laughs> I, I, I guess, I guess you know, if you've if you've got professionally trained historians and um, archaeologists, you know, I, I guess they would have certain working methods and tests that they would have to adhere to before they could put a theory forward. But you see, the, th the thing is, it's very easy if the um, if uh, let's say the ruins, you can date them. Let's say the ones that you might have in let's say um, um, Sakaleta. I mean, they're obviously they've been dated. We know when they're from, and we know they were the, they're Phoenician. Now they've been, you know, they were ruined and covered up, and they've been been excavated, and it's something that you can prove. Whereas, uh, it's how that's it's virtually impossible to do that with a tradition, because it's it's not material, and um, it's knowledge. And the thing is, so it's it's extremely hard to, to to prove. But on the other hand, I would also say it's extremely hard to disprove also, because at the end of the day, you know, the similar the similarities are are you know are clear to see. Yes, it's not like you could sort of carbon date some of the stones or some of the wood because it's it's all been replaced over the years, yeah. hasn't it? Exactly. I mean, yes, of course you can, but it's only going to go back maybe a mac, you know, let's say probably wouldn't go much further back than I don't know, 16th century or so. 
because you know the, the the wood just would not have lasted longer in the in 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 the in the open air where it probably would have been preserved. It was buried in you know peat or mud or something. So um, you know th then again, I mean, as you you know you mentioned previously with the with the wells and so on. I mean, that's in the, in the last chapter of his book is again something that's completely you know that's I think that's an even more. Um, uh, sort of uh, risky, risky, risky theory, and di more difficult to prove even even than than the previous. And uh, but you know he he actually he actually towards the end because we we published the with this book we actually managed to get published back in two thousand and twelve in in um, we translated into Catalan and first published in in Catalan. And one of one of the things discussed. And he was actually contemplating removing the last chapter as maybe being too controversial. And, um, and we spoke to various, we actually spoke to various architects and, um, and they, they convinced us to, to, to leave it in. And I'm actually really happy we did. Because it is definitely, you know, it is definitely a part of my father. And it was a very important part. You must feel really proud that he's, left this uh, great, great work for the rest of us to enjoy and learn from. Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, you know, it's, uh, it's, 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 um, you know, it's so fantastic that he, he, he did all the work that he did. As a matter of fact, and, you know, he, he was a visionary and he was sort of, you know, before his time in many things. Um, one of the one of the things that he wanted to do was actually do two volumes. One is the volume that we have printed. The other volume would have been is how how to adapt the traditional architecture for modern living and for and for um and having it on hand for something that's probably starting to come 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 um, come up and will do so more in the sense that. I think we're going to we're going to start to respect a lot more all of those lessons learned um, throughout history and apply them now again to the to the designs and methods of building and um, in you know with uh, the whole understanding of sustainability and how we really have to start respecting the planet more than we have been. And unfortunately, you know, unfortunately, that second volume was never written, so we'll never know exactly what that was. But um, I think it's it's coming about, and uh, you know, we've still got plenty of information from the first one to be able to to apply it. I was going to say, it sounds to me like there could be a volume two still in the works. You know, is that something that you that you might consider doing, or someone in your family? I think only on a practical level. <laughs> yes, well, it's time, isn't it? Yes. Well, I mean, it's actually applying it. You're understanding it, I and mean, I think you know what I do also think about it, it is it is so interesting to to see all the different ways that you know humanity has to come up to 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 you know um, tackle problems and the different solutions that evolve. So it, you know, I think and I think that's happening. Um, and the the interesting thing was that he was aware that it probably would be, and we're talking, you know, already maybe 30, 30 years ago. Can you just describe it? Tell me a little bit about the process of getting it. Well, first of all, how it was written, translated, and and published, and how difficult this has been. Well, I you know he started work on the book in the late fifties, which was of course first of all just 
you know, um, putting all the, the information together, going around, seeing the old houses, measuring them, drawing them. Most of that work was done, was finished by the um, early 90s. And um, one of the things that actually he writes in the book, which is actually now slightly under, under dispute, was um, um, a DNA study that was done in the early 90s, which was, which was stating that a lot of the, the DNA in the island population actually goes back to the time of the, the Carthaginians and um, the Near East. Uh, that actually recently is being disputed now. And um, so not a lot changed uh, since the early 90s or mid 90s. Actually, um, who we were you know, mentioning previously, which was Martin Davis, who had recently arrived on the island, actually spent a year in, in the office with my father and um, worked on the editing of the, of the book, which is actually surprisingly you know, similar to, 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 to what's actually been printed now, whatever it is, uh, almost you know, 25 years later. So um, my, my father passed away in 2012, which was the year that we, we um, finally managed to, to publish it in, in Catalan. So of course, the translation was into Catalan, not into English, as it was, you know, of course, originally written in English. And um, well, the difficulty is that we weren't entirely satisfied with the, with the results of the first book. And um, well, I don't know, anyone who's ever been involved in, you know, uh, producing a book, and especially one as complex as this, because there's so many cross-references, is, um, you know, it's just just gone on and on and on, mainly the, in the editing, because the actual, all the actual material has been around for, you know, 25 years. We have, you know, all the, the, the writing was there, the drawings were there, and it was basically um, ready to go. So he, your dad wrote it in English initially? And then it yes. translated. Oh, I see. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. So the words that we're reading in the book now are really his his words. Those are his words, and very, very. There's been very probably very. The, the editing was not so much in his writing as much in all of the cross referencing. Yes, that, I mean, I don't know if you've counted, but there must be literally thousands of drawings and pictures in the in the. We've, we've counted them. I can assure you, because we've had to go over them endlessly because. Any small change in the uh, in the editing would just throw it all into just chaos. And who was involved? Was it a family affair getting you know getting this into shape ready for publication? Um, yes, it was actually. Um, I mean, um, in in the the final editing of this of, of this publication was done by Conrad White, and um, you know, of course, we, we, he's, he's such a you know he's so good with um with images he was he was you know did a fantastic job on the layout and um and uh and the especially the layout and the editing and actually my my sister sabrina um did a lot of the uh the, the work on the the final checking of the of the editing and cross-referencing and making sure it was you know everything was where it should be and even so i'm sure there's still some things that were not correct and hopefully they're not too uh too bad. <laughs> I don't think I've spotted too many errors in there. <laughs> um, and then, I mean, it's, it's beautiful. It's beautifully printed. What, how, how did you find a, a publisher or printer that was able to produce it in such a beautiful way, to such a high standard? Well, we, we, they've actually done, I mean, we had a, we, 
We um, published uh, another book in 2012, which was of, 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 um, of our work, of uh, the, the houses that we uh, built. And we used the, the, the same publisher for this. I mean, we've, we've gone through, I think we're now on our third printing of that book or so. And um, we went to them. They're a, they're a publishing house in Barcelona that are dedicated specifically to, to architectural um, publications. Great. And, and so if anyone wants to buy a copy, how do they go about that? Well, again, um, unfortunately, we're still not really um, set up. I think you can find them. I believe you can find them on Amazon. And if not, I mean, we have them at, the, uh, at, the, at our office. We're waiting for this, the whole um, situation with the uh, lockdowns and quarantines and so on to, to try and at least get them distributed, you know, throughout the island. And um, the, the um, publishing house, which is Loft in Barcelona, distributed um, internationally. So you can find, I mean, you can find them, you can find them all over, all over the world, but they, I think due to the current uh, situation, I'm not sure it's probably maybe not as easy as it would hopefully be. And, and how much uh, does it cost? 95 euros. Okay, well, I think it's well worth the investment. Yeah. Something which will uh, sit on your shelf for the rest of your life and something to pass on to your, uh, your children, I think. <laughs> well, certainly a lot of time of effort has gone and expense has gone into it. Rolf, thank you so much for your time. It's been wonderful talking to you and, and exploring your father's uh, great creation. Legacy. Legacy. Yeah, well, um, thank you. Thank you, uh, Will. It's been a pleasure. This haunting song was recorded in San Jose in the 1950s in Ibiza. It's called Bon Amor Jo et Venk Aver, which roughly translates as Good Love, I'll Come See You. It's part of the Alan Lomax collection at the American Folklife Centre in the Library of Congress. It's used courtesy of the Association for Cultural Equity. Vas a las tres, aparece, 